How many of you are master rappers? Do you like wrapping boxes? No. Some of you find it as an art, though, and a skill. For me personally, I'm not that great with it. But you can tell if a package has been wrapped tightly, neatly, or not. Here's a typical gifted person who wrapped this box. This box represents what we're going to be talking about, which is God's gift of grace. God's gift of grace. In fact, I want us to consider how God wraps his packages. God wraps his packages sloppy, no out, no thought, and he just throws them out. Not at all. God is meticulous. God specifically has each one of you in mind when it comes this Christmas season and what he wants you to experience afresh from him. And he wraps his life in the gift of grace. Some of you might be familiar with the Psalm 23 passage. The Lord is my shepherd, right? How does it end? It ends, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. But that's not really how you need to see it. The New Living Translation says this, Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. God from the get-go has been pursuing you to give you the gift of His life the gift of His grace, the gift of His love, the gift of His hope, the gift of His purpose, the gift of His meaning. God is benevolent towards you. And though the typical version, surely goodness shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, has a nice poetic swing to it. I like how the New Living Translation puts it because His goodness and His unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. And if we're to wrap our arms around what God means by giving us His gift of grace, then we have to reorder the way that we think about God's disposition towards us. God's disposition towards us is one of benevolence and goodness and love. But that's not how it often comes across. Sometimes in churches, it doesn't come across that way. Sometimes... On the street, it does not come across that way. But Christianity, by definition, should be about God's endless pursuit of you and His grace, love, and benevolence on your behalf. C.S. Lewis, who's probably best known for the Chronicles of Narnia, the children's books, but very intelligent man he was and wrote many other things. He was at a conference once in London that was pulled together by a lot of theologians. And they were discussing different religions. And they asked C.S. Lewis... Uh, what is the difference between Christianity and all the other religions of the world? His answer, extremely intelligent, intellectual man, was one word. Grace. Grace. God's grace to you. Because most religions of the world about what? Striving to reach God. Live up to what God wants, seemingly. Pursuing God. But we can only pursue God because He first pursued us. 
He first pursued us, as it says, not only in the psalm there, but then it goes to what? The familiar passage in John 3.16, right? John 3.16, which is what? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And then when his son came, he records in John 10.10, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Now, if you have uh, journeyed uh, with the Lord and had a relationship with God for a period of years, you uh, understand that God has given you the grace of his salvation. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But when we're here on this Christmas season to wrap our arms around the gift of grace, we need to freshly look at one of the Christmas stories. It's not the Christmas story of Matthew. It's not the Christmas story of Luke. It's the Christmas story of John. Do you know that John's gospel has a Christmas story in it? You're like, well, I don't see any Mary and Joseph and that kind of thing when I study the book of John. Well, here's the Christmas story in the gospel of John. And I'll read it out of the New American Standard Version. It says this in John 1:14, And the Word, which is referring to Christ preeminent, always existing eternally with God the Father, the Son, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, this was John the Baptist. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, this was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. How is that possible? Because Christ always existed. God and the Trinity the Son. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. John was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John never referenced himself in the gospel that he wrote. He always referenced himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Because why? John got it. John got it that it wasn't about religion. It wasn't about taking the, the Judaizers and, and installing it into an established new religion for all the world. John understood that Jesus came as a completion of the law and a fulfillment, but that Jesus came because God is eternally pursuing us with love. And so he defines his Christmas story this way. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Why those two words? Why does he pick those two words? You could pick a lot of other words, right? Full of light, full of hope, full of encouragement, whatever, right? But full of grace and truth. And then later it says what? Grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. There's something embedded in the psyche and the spirit of the Apostle John that when he thought of Jesus Christ, when he thought of his entrance into this world, when he thought of the gift that God was giving us in his son, he thought of the gift of grace. Full of grace. Grace and truth. Now maybe you've carried with you a definition in your life of what grace is. This is probably the most common definition for what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is unmerited favor. 
I was thinking about how to describe this because we have watered down the word grace. We sort of throw it out all kinds of things. We, you know, that, that person was very graceful in what they were doing, this and that. We name our kids. We name one of our own children grace, that kind of thing, right? But grace to you to fully worship God in this Christmas season, for you to embrace all that he has for you, you need to make sure you carry around a healthy concept of what grace is. And what grace is, is it's going beyond God's mercy towards us. And it is identifying that he is benevolent for us, unmerited favor. Say, for instance, what if you um, got caught, I don't know, shoplifting or embezzling money? In fact, uh, I recall the other day that uh, a church that I grew up in, I was actually on staff as college and career pastor at one time, um, uh, what I still refer to as my home church these days sometimes when I think about the church that I grew up in, high school ministry, college ministry, knocking it down. I was watching the news one night, and this was many years after I had left that church, uh, not only as a congregate but also when I was on staff. And I was uh, watching a news channel in Indianapolis, Indiana, and it was talking about a problem they had uh, a church had a problem of their finance person had stolen a bunch of money. Now, that's a horrendous thing, right? And I was thinking to myself, well, that's terrible. The person, like, taken $250,000 over the course of a number of years. Uh, they had motorcycle, other kinds of things, and come to find out that this person who had, had been keeping track of their finances was dialed back into just sort of sliding money along the way. And the person, their parents were missionaries and other things. It was just sort of really sad. And then all of a sudden, it showed the name of the church. And the name of the church was a church I grew up in. And I'm like, no way! How can that happen? That's terrible! And amends were made. The guy was taken, of course, uh, in legal custody. There was a trial and he was placed in prison and those kinds of things. But we think, well, how terrible, how sad for something like that. Well, God's grace, if we were to understand unmerited favor, it would be like him being the judge in that courtroom. Terrible, difficult thing to happen. And when all the things were said and done, he looks out and he says, I'm going to have mercy on you. I'm not going to punish you. I'm not going to send you to prison. In fact, somehow we'll make amends for the church but you're good to go. You're off the hook. You're like, what? That, my friend, would be mercy. Grace is favor on top of mercy. That's like the judge getting up from behind his big desk, walking around to the gentleman that's seated out there that took $250,000 and saying, here is a check for $250,000. Go and be blessed. There you go. That's, that's a facetious story, Carrie. Come on. Well, my mind goes to places where I try to grab a hold of what God has done for me. Scriptures say that the wages of sin is death. When I realize the disposition not only of my own spirit, but the disposition of the human beings of the world that God created, how they are many times indifferent, belligerent, sometimes outright antagonistic, rebellious, that type of thing. All right, God, if he's a just God, which he is, then we're all doomed. We're, it's over. We're done. 
You want justice? Justice! We speak justice! Yeah, we want justice. You want justice? Justice in this world is for all of us just to disappear. And God would have every right to do that because he is a holy God and he created a holy world and sin entered through the choices that mankind made because God wanted mankind to choose to love him and not be made to love him, right? And so we had the fall enter and the fall through Adam and Eve and through every generation since and through every generation to come until the Lord returns. We have fallen, decadent human beings and all of us are at the same level here today. We are human beings born into sin and we have all sinned. We have missed the mark, the definition of what sin is. And a just God could just easily say, that's it, you're done. But, thankfully, God doesn't operate towards us with justice alone. He operates towards us with mercy. He operates towards us with mercy in that he forgives us our sins. He forgives us and says, that's okay, I forgive you. If you were here last week, I, I had sort of the embarrassing story to tell you about how my Saturday headed south, and many of you told me afterwards, oh, that was such a great story. And I'm like, yeah, I, your pastor's a sinner. You know, and, and, and so the Saturday headed south, I was frustrated with a lot of things. A lot of news hit me that was not right. I was trying to cut the Christmas tree right and everything, and the dogs were yapping next door, and I went next door to yell at the dogs and scare them back into their house, and I had a saw in my hand. And my son was going, Dad, what are you doing, my 21-year-old son? And my neighbor saw me, and he comes down, and he says, hey, stop that, that kind of thing. It was just not a pretty scene. You can listen to last week's message. I guess it's recorded forever now. I had texted him to ask for forgiveness that night, but I knew. I told you last week I needed to go see him face-to-face, right? So I told you that up front because we were talking about the whole thing of how to praise the Lord even when you're having a bad day. Got to do so we head home, and it was just Levi and I here. We were heading back, and uh, we're walking up to my house, got my bag. We're ready to walk in the front door. And Levi looks at me. Remember what you said, friend? He looks at me, and he says, you going to go see George now? <laughs> and I said, you think we should go see George? Yep. So I put down my bag. We walked next door. I knocked on the door. George came, and I said, George, I just wanted to apologize to you face-to-face. I'm sorry for my actions last night. Now, George, in that moment, he's a very gracious man. And uh, George said to me, he says, oh, that's all right. We all have our bad days. In that moment, though, I thought to myself as I walked away, when I knock on the door of God concerning my sin, he doesn't look at me and say, that's all right. We all have our bad days. God looks at me and he says, you're right, you have sinned and your sin is towards me. But I want you to know that you're forgiven. I forgive you. God's mercy is how he operates towards us even though he has every right to operate towards us with a spirit of justice and judgment for our sin. In fact, if anybody ever asks you for forgiveness, can I encourage you to do something? Verbally say to them, look them in the eye and say, I forgive you. If you indeed can forgive them in that moment, and many times it's very difficult to forgive. One of the definitions of forgiveness is releasing somebody of the debt that they owe you because what you feel the harm they've done to your life, and people have done a lot of harm to our life. But if you're at a place where you can truly forgive somebody, then verbalize it. Don't just say, hey, it's okay. No, there was a wrong done. I forgive you. And Jesus Christ comes to you this morning, no matter what sin you have in your background, and he looks at you full of mercy, 
full of grace. And he says, I forgive you. Some of you need to hear that this morning because maybe it's been something a little bit deeper than just chasing the neighbor's dogs with a saw in your hand. (laughs) There's justice. There's mercy. But unmerited favor means God goes above and beyond that and he gives you the 250,000 of his own accord. He blesses you. He blesses you with not only eternal life, He blesses you with a full life, a richness. Even though you may have challenges and struggles and time going on, take stock, take steps back. Be able to prime the pump like we talked about last week, to praise the Lord, oh my soul, wake up and do this because look all that I have done. And what was one of the first things said last week by the psalmist? You have forgiven of me all my sins. He has forgiven you and then He has lavished upon you His grace And foremost at the front of that, we celebrate at this time of year, every year, but we live with joyful hearts throughout the year. The gift of grace that He gave us as He got out of heaven, He sent Himself to walk down here with us sinners, and He chose to sacrifice His life for us so that we could have life through the forgiveness of our sins through His shed blood. And so we have a gracious God, unmerited favor. A.W. Tozer defines grace this way. He says, grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. How does God operate toward you? By grace. Dallas Willard, his definition was this. Grace is God acting in our life to accomplish what we cannot accomplish on our own. So grace, a definition of grace, justice, mercy, yeah, but more grace giving you above and beyond what you would ever, ever have any right to have. Now, there's two types of graces I want to give reference to. The first is saving grace. We are the, probably the most familiar with this if you have been a Christian for a long period of time or if you've heard any type of gospel message. Saving grace. And it says this in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Familiar passage. Spot on. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. A gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Religion is about doing things to earn favor with God. All right? Christianity acknowledges that you can't do nearly enough. I'm not even a pipsqueak amount enough to be able to earn any favor with God compared to who he is and his holiness. And so it's not of yourself. It is a gift of grace that God has given you by what he's done. But you must receive that gift. But that receiving is not a work. That receiving is just a humble acceptance of what he's provided for you. God's saving grace. Have you come to a place in time where you have received God's saving grace, his son, Jesus Christ? And that's the gift that is offered to you, especially in a season such as when we remember Christ's entrance into the world that God so loved, he gave. His only Son to you. But saving grace, 
many times only gets us so far in how we have to live our life. There is the idea of sustaining grace. Romans 5, 1 and 2 puts them together. It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith. And I've underlined it here. I love this phrase. Into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There is saving grace, and if you committed your life to Christ, you received His gift, then you know your sins are forgiven. You received eternal life. You're acknowledging that He's given you a full life because of who He is, even though things haven't been maybe going well this week. But you've acknowledged in your life saving grace. But then this is what happens. We move away from saving grace, and we fall into, the big word is legalism. We fall into a works-oriented kind of living. That was very nice of you, God, through Jesus. Thank you for grieving my sins. I can tell you exactly when. I've got it written down. When I prayed to accept Jesus into my life, my sins are forgiven. I know eternity steps before me. But if we were to open the journal of your life, you would be wrestling an awful lot, not with God's unmerited favor and the beauty of it this week. You would be wrestling with trying to measure up to this holy God. Hunger Games came out its third deal. You guys watch the Hunger Games thing. It's a scary, scary trilogy kind of deal. And um, I haven't gone to see the third one. But in Hunger Games, they're out trying to track you down and hunt you as a person. Sometimes I feel like we think God's that way. God was very gracious, gave us his gift up front. But how I live my life now is God's tracking me down. How well did you do with your devotions this week? I can't believe you slighted the hand on that one. And looky there. Is God grieved by his sins? You betcha God's grieved by our sins. He does not desire for us to sin. But when he gives us his grace, it forgives our sins, past, present, and future. And we live in this disposition. We stand in this grace of his every day. It's like our children. If they do something wrong, we correct them. But do we track them and hunt them down? Do we have a spirit of anger towards them? Is that our disposition? No. God's disposition is still His unfailing love is pursuing you. His saving grace needs to become a sustaining grace in your life. And maybe the gift that you need to unwrap this Christmas concerning the gift of grace is not saving grace, but you need to open afresh and anew and discover that God has a disposition towards you of love and great liking, if I can put it that way. He's not hunting you down. Sustaining grace. We have been justified through our faith. And we have peace with God. We've gained access into His very presence, into this grace in which we now stand. David Siemens, who wrote a book, he's uh, been a counselor for a number of years, uh, evangelical counselor. I wrote a book called Healing Grace. He says this, a lifetime of counseling evangelical Christians, a lifetime. I mean, it's been his whole life counseling you folks, me, all right? So this isn't like the really lost, broken people. These are people who claim to have God's saving grace in their life. He says this, a lifetime of counseling evangelical Christians has driven me to a disturbing conclusion. 
The basic cause of many of our most troubling emotional and spiritual problems is insufficient grace. Although we sing amazing grace and vigorously proclaim salvation by grace through faith alone, grace is largely head knowledge, a truth believed about God, but not a living experience with God. Being restless achievers instead of resting believers causes a whole variety of personal problems. These range all the way from anxiety, guilt, and low self-esteem to severe emotional breakdown. I am convinced that the failure to receive and live out God's unconditional grace and the corresponding failure to offer grace to others are at the root of it all. A lifetime counselor says it comes down to what C.S. Lewis says is the most significant thing about Christianity. Grace. Grace. Saving grace, sustaining grace. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says this. He said to me, this is the Apostle Paul after he prayed to be released of this burden and frustration in his life. And if you look in the, um, uh, the epistle to the Corinthians, these words are actually red letter words, which means somewhere verbally, inspiration, a vision or whatever. Red letter words means those are words that Jesus spoke. You don't find a lot of red-letter words in the epistles because Jesus has already ascended to the heavens, right? So these are red-letter words. He said to me, Jesus said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the main thing I want to offer to you today. I struggle with this. I'm sure you struggle with it as well. When we are at a place in life where we feel we are not measuring up, maybe there's all kinds of arrows being thrown at us by the adversary or the world. We move as believers in Christ from a place of joy and hope and gracious living to others. We move to a place where we're bunkered in fearful. We are not living in light of God's disposition towards us. We look at our weaknesses and we feel like we are losers. We look at the problems that we have pressing in on our life and we become inundated and bogged down. And the adversary, what's he do? He sits back with glee because he is just Stripped from you an understanding of God's sustaining grace, His disposition towards you. And you need to realize that even in your weakness, in your brokenness, God's glory can be made strong. And we find God's grace in the high places and in the low places. And when you and I wake up on any particular morning, you need to become a preacher 
and preach God's grace to you all over again. Because that's his disposition towards you today. Even if you, doggone it, really went down a wrong path again. He is not playing the hunger games. He is not sitting as the judge over your life. If you've received his forgiveness, your sins have been dealt with past, present, and future. And your standing before the Lord is a standing in grace, receiving his sustaining grace. And through that, there should be joy that's infused into your life, even if the finances aren't looking right, the health factors aren't happening, the kids are off a little bit on the grades. God wants you to know every morning, every hour of every day that his disposition towards you is one of grace. And the adversary will seek to steal it because if he can steal away that grace, he steals away your joy. And if he steals away your joy, he steals away your strength. And if he steals away your strength, then you're really good for nothing in the kingdom of God and even for your own family. So, as we look at the gift of grace this Christmas season, we do not acknowledge that we have received greatly his saving grace and also his sustaining grace. You can take those two passages, put them together. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, knowing that his grace is sufficient for you, for his power is made perfect even in your weakness. This will be the first of many Sundays, not just for this series, but for the years, if God so chooses, that I have to stand before you. There is something in this that is vital to our own life and to reaching a valley of people in brokenness. We need to understand what grace is and we need to live in that grace on a daily basis. We have sort of allowed our Christian faith at times to become one that focuses on being responsible to God. And there is responsibility to God. But foremostly, it's not responsibility to God. It's response to God. He's pursuing you. Will you respond? Different ones of us have different stories about how, you know, maybe we met our spouse or maybe there was a significant dating relationship you were in and you could tell that story. Inevitably in that story, sometimes it's mutual, sometimes not, there is one person who's more the pursuer than the other person. Some of you smile because you're like, yeah, I told him no five times. <laughs> and he still said, you want to go out with me? Our story was one where it flip-flopped. One of us was pursuing, and then they stopped pursuing. And then the other one started pursuing. Think in terms of a love relationship. And maybe if you can sort of just catch a flavor of when you fell in love, 
Wasn't that a beautiful experience to have the person pursue you? Maybe not overshadow you and overwhelm you. I'm not talking about that kind of person. But someone who was there, who was interested in you, who wanted to spend time with you. They didn't care what the date was. You know, let's just, let's just go. We'll go for a walk. When someone's pursuing you, doesn't it change your whole disposition? You're like, oh, I think they not only like me, oh, they told me they loved me. And all the world goes on around you. It can all be going bad. But if there's that person who loves you and pursues you, you're able to find strength in the midst of all those weaknesses. Jesus, God's Son, came here to pursue you. He loves you. For God so loved the world that He gave. And He is pursuing you afresh and anew every morning. May your Christian faith not be one that's defined by responsibility. But may it be one that's defined by response. Response to the love of God. And then, as you share the gift of God's grace, may you teach people, may you encourage people, may you challenge people that what it's about is not living up to His standards. He'll help you do that over the course of time. But what it's about is responding to His love. I would have thought at the age that I'm in that I would have learned this lesson by now. But I have to preach the gospel to myself every morning because I live in the same world you live in. That dog-eat-dog world. You know, take no prisoners. You only go around once in life. You better grab it and go. What's pressed into us is consumption, acquisition, achievement. But we're not Boy Scouts here trying to earn badges or athletes trying to stack up a lot of trophies. That's not how God relates to us. How He relates to us is out of a disposition of grace. Lord, I pray this morning that You would help us as believers in this season to receive your gift, not only of saving grace, but sustaining grace. In this room, at this very moment, there are people who are living underneath the bondage of legalisms, works righteousness, trying to figure out if they measure up to you, that if you're angry with them or upset with them, Lord, may you reveal yourself afresh to them if they're your children as the loving Heavenly Father and that you gave to them the gift of life through your Son. Lord, may we find ourselves basking in your sustaining grace on the other side of your saving grace. Lord, may we receive your saving grace, your Son, Jesus Christ, but may we also bask in your sustaining grace. And from that, Lord, live our lives as indeed you desire for us to live. May we learn this lesson afresh and anew this morning, but may we experience it in the personal life, our interior life, this week. And Lord, may we as a body of people move forward 
as gracious people because we live in your grace every day. That amazing, amazing grace.